It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. I'm David Knowles, and this is Ukraine, the latest. Today... We discuss Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky's visit to war-torn Bakhmut, Russian President Vladimir Putin's meeting with Alexander Lukashenko in Belarus, and we speak about Ukraine's literary scene in wartime with our guest, Badana Nebarak. This hideous and barbaric venture of Vladimir Putin must end in failure. Putin's war in Ukraine has destabilized energy markets the world over. Nobody's going to break us. We're strong. We're Ukrainians. Every weekday afternoon, we sit down with leading journalists from the Telegraph's London newsroom and our teams reporting on the ground to bring you the latest news and analysis on the war in Ukraine. It's Tuesday, the 20th of December, day 300. Today, I'm joined by our assistant comment editor, Francis Sternley, foreign correspondent James Kilner, and our guest, Badana Nebarak, is a journalist, culture manager and podcast host, calling from Ukraine. I started by asking Francis for the latest news from Ukraine. Well, thanks, David. Good to be showing the airways with you again. The big news today is that Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky has made an unannounced visit to battle-torn Bakhmut this morning. Obviously, the the centre of one of the most brutal fights in the war to date. Mr. Zelensky met military officials and handed out awards to Ukrainian servicemen in the city located on the front line of the Donetsk region. Now, regular listeners, of course, will be familiar with the fact that Bakhmut has witnessed fighting reminiscent of the First World War in recent weeks. We've seen hundreds killed there and wounded each day in intense shelling and bloody frontal attacks. Indeed, it's been nicknamed the Bakhmut meat grinder for the losses that the Ukrainians are suffering, but also the losses that the Russians have also suffered. I mean, as I've underlined on the podcast before, that there's a bit of a mythos that's 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 I think emerged in some Western commentary that believes that the Western line that the the, uh, that the battle lines have frozen. Uh, in recent days and weeks, but the reality is very different, that there are still hundreds of people dying every day, and Bakhmut is at the very centre of that. Um, now, Mr. Lenski's visit, of course, is symbolic. It's important in saying, saying that he doesn't have fear of um, going up to the very front line um, and being uh, attacked by uh, the Russians, saying that things are more stable there than perhaps some people believe. It obviously comes on the back of him visiting recently liberated cities such as Hezon and Izium. And I think it's worth just also explaining a little bit about what the significance of this of this relatively strategically minor location is in the grand scheme of things. And it's not so much the the significance of it as a site in and of itself. It's what it might do, Bakhmut, if the Russians were able to seize it, or at least what they believed perhaps what would have once been the case if they'd been able to seize it, which is that it would have opened the way to Slovyansk and Kramatorsk, which are the most important cities in the Donbass region still under Ukrainian control. So... Putin essentially is trying to throw everything at this in an attempt to take control of Bakhmut, open up the, the strategic routeways into those uh, other areas, which, of course, would give him a major propaganda and strategic victory at this very precarious moment for him in the war. Now, the reason I think that already it's past the point where Bakhmut has that kind of strategic significance, albeit it would have a symbolic one if the Russians were able to take it, is that the Ukrainians already been strengthening their defences in the surrounding area. So even if Russia were to able to take Bakhmut, I think that there would be very, very intense fighting further down the line, which would mean that its strategic significance would be greatly reduced because it wouldn't really open things up to the same degree. It would just mean that the the, 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 the battle line would, would inch forward, again, more like a sort of First World War style in this kind of winter context. So 
as I say, Bakhmut, Zelensky's there this morning, symbolic moment, I think, and uh, of course, a, a big moment of significance, no doubt, for those soldiers who are fighting there. But the strategic significance of Bakhmut, I think, has, has transcended its it, in, from being somewhere that perhaps a few weeks ago was really somewhere that if it had fallen to the Russians would have been, you know, a, a big moment. It's now become something really, as I say, more of a meat grinder and somewhere that really the losses that are being suffered are perhaps not equal to its, its strategic significance, only its symbolic one. Thanks, Francis. And just zooming out of, of Bakhmut, what's the situation across Ukraine elsewhere? Yes, well, I think the, the other main story to talk about in relation to the military side of things is, of course, the continued and persistent attacks on the infrastructure. Russia has still been attacking Ukrainian oil and gas facilities overnight in eastern Ukraine. Now, according to the heads of Ukrainian energy companies, they said there have been significant fires, but no casualties as a consequence of that. I'll read a direct quote. Enemy missiles hit one of the facilities in the Kharkiv region. A large-scale fire broke out at the site. Its elimination is currently underway. There are no casualties. Now, it's worth emphasising again that the most perhaps remarkable thing about these critical infrastructure attacks is, of course, they are very... um, uh, well, significant, but it's, it's uh, understating it. If you're without uh, water and energy in these kind of temperatures, you, you know about it. And it's, it can you know lead to absolutely horrific conditions like some of the previous ones we've talked about on this podcast, like hospitals who are having to conduct operations by torchlight. I mean, this is horrific. So I'm not in any way trying to um, downplay that. But I think the most remarkable story out of this is actually that they, the Ukrainians have been able to restore power, restore gas and water quite quickly after these attacks and I think it's whilst of course there have been spells and we've heard already from Ukrainians across the country who talk about um, how in certain places it can be days before um, power returns and things like that that usually it's matters of hours and that is a remarkable achievement when we're facing the kind of accurate weaponry that Russians have had now for several months particularly following the drones that they acquired from from Iran so um, whilst as I say, I'm mentioning the critical infrastructure attacks and they are of immense importance. I also want to say that there is this other side to it, which is actually that once they're knocked out, it's not usually been long before they're restored. And as I say, here in this example, they're already saying that whatever the significance of the attacks overnight, that they hope to have the, the services restored within a matter of hours, which is, as I say, remarkable and is something, again, that would speak to another historical illusion that we've touched on in this podcast many times, which is the Blitz here in, in, in London during the war. It was a very similar situation there. Critical infrastructure was targeted by uh, by Nazi Germany and uh, it was essentially a, a, a slog to get through the months of the of, of the Blitz. But if one was able to do it, it meant that the strategic significance of those attacks, whether it be on airfields or whether it be on the city of London itself, was greatly, greatly reduced because essentially it was just a throwing resources, losing resources in terms of the, the, uh, the, the Luftwaffe, uh, uh, but for, for no strategic gain. And that seems to be the real story here, as I say, for whether it be the tax on the critical infrastructure, whether it be a tax on Bakhmut, is that these are attacks that are past the point of strategic relevance, I would argue, that they are just really throwing missiles, throwing attacks at sites that are... Um, of uh, not really any more uh, of the kind of strategic relevance they were m- many months ago, but yet the Russians are continuing to attack them because they really have very little else left to do. Nearly, uh, very few options available to them whilst they're resupplying. So um, it's a tragic state of affairs, really, as as we've been saying really now for weeks. Thank you very much for all of that, Francis. Uh, James Kilner, can I come to you? Uh, Francis has detailed President Volodymyr Zelensky's uh, visit to Bakhmut this morning. Uh, Russian President Vladimir Putin has been on a state visit to Belarus in the last day. Can you talk us about what's happening there? That's right, David. Incredible that Zelensky's uh, made a trip to Bakhmut. Absolutely incredible. I mean, the photos I've seen of Bakhmut at the moment make it look like Passchendaele. And if you compare the intelligence and communication discipline Ukrainians must currently be imposing on their front lines and logistics to get their commander-in-chief to the front line and back safely is incredible compared to how the Russians were conducting the war at the beginning when a general would go to the front line and there'd be an assassination attempt by a Ukrainian missile, etc. Really incredible. And then you compare it again to how Putin 
has conducted his war from from mainly from the Kremlin. He hasn't been to Ukraine or the front lines at all. In fact, Minsk may have been the closest he's he's come to Ukraine in, in many ways. He was there on Monday, his first time to Belarus since uh, 2019, I think. Obviously, uh, Lukashenko, the uh, president of Belarus, is, is one of his closest allies. And he's been to the Kremlin, I think, a dozen times since about 2021, after his own, after his own, after he, he crushed uh, anti-government protests in, in, in Mint and, and Belarus. So this was a very, obviously a very rare and uh, important trip by Putin to Minsk. And it comes at a time when the Ukraine military command has been warning that Russian forces are gathering in, in Belarus, preparing for another attack. And of course, we, we all remember that one of the main thrusts of the initial attack on February 24th was launched from Belarus directly to Kiev. That's the shortest, uh, you know, that's the shortest route. That was the shortest route for the Russian forces to get to Kiev and, and, and they went for it from Belarus. And Lukashenko has also allowed Russian military aircraft to fire missiles at Ukrainian targets in Belarusian airspace. So the, the, the Belarusian contribution to the Russian war effort is already very large. What Lukashenko hasn't done is he has not committed any Belarusian soldiers, tanks, etc. to the to 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 the Russian war effort. By all accounts, both from the sources that we can read and, and from the media that we can pick up, the Kremlin wants him to commit to, to the war effort. And it it was probably Putin Putin was most likely there to try and push his agenda, to try and get Lukashenko to commit more forces to uh, Russia's uh, invasion. Now, Lukashenko is reliant on Kremlin for, for patronage, for um, subsidies, for oil and gas subsidies and, and, and economic handouts, etc. But he also knows that the vast majority of the Belarusian population, I think polls say about 90%, are against his forces entering the war in Ukraine. So uh, there's that. And also his, his forces are much smaller, you know, hugely smaller than those available to Putin. And if he sends his best forces to Ukraine, they will be missing from the, uh, they won't be able to crush any street unrest that their involvement in Ukraine might trigger in Belarus. So that makes Lukashenko more vulnerable and he knows all this. So we have this rather sort of funny uh, scenario, well, not funny, I mean, awkward scenario yesterday whereby Putin was there clearly with a, a major agenda to try and nudge Lukashenko, his vassal, towards entering uh, the war in Ukraine. They have this big press conference and they talk about economic cooperation. They talk about trade boosts. They talk about how Russia doesn't want to absorb Belarus totally. And they just avoid this topic altogether, other than saying, you know, we are gently sort of realigning our forces so they work more closely together, etc. And uh, the Belarusian Air Force is taking Russian advisors and technicians and how to upgrade, etc. There was actually very, very little mention of Ukraine, if, if any at all. We do know that Belarusia is helping train some of the 320,000 mobilised men that were conscripted into the Russian army in September and October. So... There are, it's, it's difficult to know exactly how many, but there are thousands of Russian soldiers in Belarus at the moment, apparently on training missions. Beyond that, there's no indication, no, no hard indication, other than Ukrainian military commanders to suggest that an attack is coming from Belarus. But the indication is that Putin was in Minsk to try and push Lenkashenko in that direction. Thank you very much, James. Just a few more um, updates from international politics from Francis, then James, and then I'd like to get to Badana as, as quickly as possible, really. So thank you very much, Francis. 
Thanks, David. I'll whiz through these. Quite an interesting uh, development this morning. The International Monetary Fund, the IMF, has approved a four-month programme for Ukraine aimed at maintaining its economic stability amid Russia's invasion and helping to promote donor financing. Essentially, they've uh, had a board meeting last night and confirmed this is Gavin Gray, the IMF's mission chief for Ukraine, has said that the IMF estimates that Ukraine will need between 40 billion and 57 billion in external financing in 2023. And they've said that their four month programme monitoring with board investment uh, has been approved, which essentially is is strategizing as to how to best financially support Ukraine over the coming months. So Again, it doesn't. I know these stories can sometimes pale in significance to what's going on in the battlefield, but actually, this stuff really matters because this is what is keeping the lights on in many parts of Ukraine. This is what is keeping uh, food and everything else still operating in that country. So it's important to to be aware that of just the amount of money that is is still being funneled into Ukraine from the European Union, from individual nations, from the United States, and of course from the IMF as well, just in order to keep the country afloat whilst it's facing this vicious bombardment. Bar- bombardment from Russia. And just another story in the diplomatic space. Very interesting, this one. So the United States has accused the UN Secretary General Antonio Gutierrez of apparently yielding to Russian threats by not sending officials to Ukraine to inspect Russian deployed drones that Washington and others, of course, including ourselves, believe were supplied by Iran. Now, indeed, I don't think there's any doubting that these drones were supplied by Iran. We've done extensive investigations here at The Telegraph, as have many other um, agencies around the world and and, and, and journalist outlets. Um, and yet it seems that the UN has been very hesitant to actually go and investigate this on the ground themselves. Should be said that Russia have denied that its forces have used these Iranian drones in Ukraine, but um, I believe that Iran itself sort of semi-admitted to it in a in, in, in something a few uh, a few weeks ago. So really, there's no there's no question about this. But for whatever reason, uh, the UN has decided not to investigate it. But what the most significant thing about this is the fact that the US have called them out on it publicly. Clearly, they felt that this was important enough to break the semblance of international unity at the moment on the question of Ukraine because they feel that it is suggestive, perhaps, of the UN not doing as much as it should be doing on the question of Ukraine. Obviously, a charge that has been made of the UN since this war began, indeed, by myself and Dom Nichols on this podcast. So, um, yes, uh, just an interesting development there. Less so what's happened, but rather the fact that the US has broken cover in order to condemn the uh, the United Nations Secretary General for not going further in investigating these. And just one last story from within Russia itself. Putin has ordered Russia's intelligence network to set up surveillance inside Russia to hunt down, quote, traitors, spies and saboteurs. Now, this, of course, comes on the back of um, significant mystery attacks on military bases and ammunition dumps in the country. There's also been these uh, mysterious blazes that have been ripping through shopping malls and factories and other facilities in recent months. Now, my own view on the shopping malls is that this is related to the Ukraine in the sense of it being a sign of the economic impact of Ukraine because people are essentially trying to get insurance money. But I don't believe that it's a direct you know, foreign agencies doing this. But nonetheless, I do think it is connected. But I think this should be seen rather less in terms of, um, you know, what's accurately happening in the country and more in terms of this is an attempt by Putin to blame international spies, blame saboteurs at home, as he's been doing throughout the conflict, and to generally bolster his own intelligence networks as things become increasingly precarious at home. We've talked already in the podcast in recent uh, days and weeks about there seems to be suggestions of via very um, thorough polling that the popularity of the war is on the decrease in the country as particularly as a ramification of the mobilization and Indeed, it's suggestive, as I say, that things are becoming more and more difficult, not least with the economic tensions that are already playing out, but are bound to do so even more so in the coming months. And I think that this should be seen as an attempt to expand the intelligence services, um, justifying doing so in in, uh, publicly claiming that it's to stop foreign influence. But actually, it's yet a further attempt to suppress insurrection at home or the possibility of insurrection at home as things become increasingly challenging for Putin at this uh, critical juncture.
Thank you very much, Francis. Just a couple more quick updates from James, if that's all right, and then Badana will bring you in. Thank you so much for, for bearing with us. Um, James, we've, we've spoken um, on the podcast recently about uh, President Putin um, abandoning his, his, his marathon annual press conference, but he's also cancelled a, 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 a hockey game he takes part in. Um, and you've also been writing a very interesting story about uh, how uh, Russian musicians, uh, opera singers and circus performers are potentially going to be sent to the front lines. Can you talk us through what you found? This really follows on from what France has, has just been saying in, in, his, in his excellent debrief then about the war in Russia actually becoming increasingly unpopular um, since mobilisation. Pre-mobilisation, most people were able to ignore the war. Post-mobilisation, that just wasn't possible. And we've seen this manifest itself in uh, through the mothers and wives of mobilised men, etc. And their increasing frustration with, with the authorities. And really importantly, we've seen this this this. The, the, the Kremlin has, it's got to a point now where the Kremlin has had to pay attention to this dissatisfaction amongst the Russian population. And it's, it, it, it moves, it's, it's a slow juggernaut, it's a slow moving juggernaut at the Kremlin, but, but it has, you can see it sort of changing tack slightly. These, one, one, one of the things, one of the small indications we've seen is, is from Putin himself who has admitted in the last few weeks that mobilisation hasn't gone particularly well. And we, we saw him pop up on Saturday morning, the video of him being briefed by his military commanders for the first time in a fairly long time, for, especially for a commander-in-chief who's running a, a war which isn't going very well. I think a month back or so, he, he was videoed at a training ground for mobilised men and he even gave a mobilised man a hug. Um, and said, good luck. You know, there was a, there was a, a rare moment, sort of an insight into the vulnerability in a way that Putin is feeling around mobilisation. So um, alongside the cancellation of the press conference, that big annual event, was he also cancelled an ice hockey event match, which he, which he plays in uh, on New Year's Eve every year. And, and again, much like the press conference, this design so he can sort of show off his, his matchiness, et cetera. There was no reason given why this ice hockey match was 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 abandoned. Um, perhaps it, he's not he's not physically up to it this year, or perhaps it's just seen as too frivolous at a time of war. But again, it just it just reduces his uh, the, the Kremlin optics. It reduces his visibility, reduces his matchiness and his in his ability to project. Um, and then there was a story on Sunday. Where um, well, it actually came out a few days earlier, where the Russian Ministry of Defence announced that um, uh, it was sending so-called creative brigades to frontline troops to try and cheer them up. Um, sort of a cherry pick from the from the Red Army's playbook in the in World War Two, where they had a couple of thousand of these brigades with singers and uh, circus performers, etc., etc., sent to frontline to bolster morale. So. Um, Again, the Kremlin is just showing, trying to show the Russian population uh, that it, it it actually does care about Russian soldiers. It, you know, the Russian people are, are sort of flagged up that the Kremlin clearly is fairly dispassionate. And the Kremlin say, no, no, we care. You know, we're sending these entertainers. We understand that morale is not as strong as it should be. Whether or not a circus performer can uh, boost morale to frontline troops after... Um, 10 months of war is, is another question. Well, thank you very much, James and Francis, for all of those updates. Um, it's a, a, a huge honour to welcome our guest, um, Berdana Nebarak. Uh, thank you so much for, for joining us. Uh, Berdana, we've, we've gone through all of these updates and everything, and would, would you just like to tell us a little bit about yourself and your experiences this year? Yeah, so thanks for having me here, and uh, I'm glad to have this opportunity to join your community. Um, if to speak about myself, uh, my daily job is journalism. I'm an editor at the Ukrainians Media. It is an independent media company. And uh, there I work mostly with uh, long-read interviews and projects connected with culture. Uh, we have two offices in Kiev and in Lviv, which is in the western part of the country. Uh, yeah, and that's like that. Also, I work with uh, different culture projects, and I think that uh, we will dwell upon them further. Absolutely. Um, if you don't mind me asking, it was your birthday just a few days ago. How, how did you spend it? What did you do? What was it like having having your birthday um, uh, d- during the full-scale invasion? Oh, yeah. 
Russia rained uh, down uh, really scores of missiles uh, on Ukraine's power grid uh, on Friday and uh, uh, it uh, damaged uh, the infrastructure of Ukraine a lot. Uh, So there were blackouts and power outages across the country. It was one of the largest attacks. Uh, with my partner, we stayed uh, at the corridor till the end of uh, air alarm. And uh, usually at uh, our birthdays, we travel the world and uh, introduce each other new cities. And uh, it was really nice uh, <laughs> to take a shuttle bus uh, to the airport, which is quite close to our place, and take with ourselves just small backpacks and uh, leave uh, from one of the cave airports and just explore. Um, but times change, and now I am tremendously thankful that I may meet my birthday in the city that I love most of all. So we spent quite uh, time, and uh, I need to say that even uh, my favorite restaurant uh, served the dishes. Nevertheless, they um, had no power, and they had water outages. And of course, we were able to rose glasses to Ukrainian victory, and I moved with uh, my work. Oh, well, happy birthday. Um, I'm glad it went as well as, well as it could have done. Um, just just talking a little bit more about celebrations. Um, Christmas is obviously, um, well, it's right around the corner for us in, in Britain. Could you give us a little bit of an introduction to Ukrainian Christmas traditions? What, what, what are Ukrainians doing and how, how are they adapting to, to, to the strikes and everything in, in terms of uh, preparing for Christmas? Uh, Christmas is uh, the most important holiday uh, for me, so uh, I myself uh, uh, decorate uh, the apartment by gifts and listen to Christmas songs. Uh, But uh, I need to say about uh, uh, some festive things in Ukraine in general this year. Uh, When I uh, came back to Kyiv in May, Uh, I was told uh, by my friends uh, that uh, this is the year when uh, they see as many flowers at the balconies as uh, they have never seen before. Because um, people want to celebrate life and they want to celebrate uh, their sovereignty and independence. And I think that uh, with Christmas it is uh, kind of similar because Ukrainian Christmas is very special and it is very important uh, feast for Ukrainians. The traditions are very different from region to region, but you know it is really a great opportunity to share your traditions. And for example, I was born in Lviv and I was raised in Lviv and lived there until my 20s. So I'm really excited when I uh, speak with my friends who uh, stay, for example, in Kharkiv and they tell me how they celebrate Christmas and how the fest was uh, celebrated at their homes. Of course, Christmas is very different this year because, uh, for example, we cannot have those beautiful Christmas trees as uh, we always had or, for example, nice Christmas markets. But still, it is not about uh, uh, light uh, in um, the terms of electricity, first of all, but it is about the light that we have inside ourselves. And I think that this year Ukrainians feel that Christmas is the um, feast of uh, hope and love and, uh, first of all, the feast of uh, what is born in uh, our hearts uh, each year. And uh, uh, people just want to be together and to say, like... um, We know what we are fighting for and we uh, know who we love. And um, uh, what I also want to say that this year is very important for Ukrainian Christmas celebrations because uh, this is 100 years of Ukrainian Carol of the Bells, Shadrak. And you probably know that there was a big concert at Carnegie Hall um, just uh, a month ago, maybe even less. Uh, This concert was uh, dedicated uh, to the um, most famous Ukrainian uh, uh, Christmas song. And it was written by the Ukrainian composer Mykola Leontovich. This composer, unfortunately, was uh, killed by the Russian Bolsheviks in uh, the year 1921. But in the year 1922, there was a big mission of... Uh, Ukrainian uh, People Republic, which um, uh, had a big uh, 
uh, choir uh, who performed across the world Ukrainian music and Ukrainian songs. And among those songs, the most famous was Shadrek, which became the Carol of the Bells. So a lot of people in Ukraine now discover their own cultural heritage, but also they can uh, speak better about this cultural heritage uh, abroad. And this Carol of the Bells is just one of the examples. Yes, definitely. Well, Alona Shevchenko, who came on this podcast a few weeks ago, did, did introduce us to Carol of the Bells. So it's, it's great to hear about it again. Um, turning to the Ukrainian literary scene, Badana, you work uh, and you write a lot about culture. Um, how are people getting their fix of, of poetry and literature um, in Ukraine at the moment during the blackouts and during the freezing temperatures? What, what kind of events are going on? Uh, I need to say that uh, uh, readers read and uh, there are a lot of people uh, who want to discover uh, what it uh, what does it mean to be Ukrainian better and culture and especially literature written world uh, it uh, gives us a lot of space to discover that. Uh, so um, I need to say that we really have a lot of events and we uh, even have new independent bookstores opened. It was the issue for Ukrainians because we never had a lot of independent bookstores. Now I have two new open in my neighborhood and I'm very happy about that. And I think that the um, explanation is really simple because people want to um, have places where they can communicate, where they can discuss uh, some interesting issues, uh, but uh, also they want to reflect. And even if uh, we have power outages and we have poor internet connection, uh, we may uh, read a book and we may reflect on it um, with our friends or colleagues. And uh, I think that now we really feel this power of book as the cultural artifact, but also the power of literature, not only Ukrainian literature, but also foreign literature translated into Ukrainian, because people are very interested in the power of translation also. So um, people read a lot, really. And, you know, uh, tomorrow we are celebrating the first anniversary of the Ukrainian Media Book Club, which we launched last year. And uh, we will have, I cannot uh, call it a party, but we will gather and we will speak about the big novel by Oksana Zabushko. It is translated also into English. It is called The Museum of Abandoned Secrets. And uh, mm, it is uh, the novel about uh, cultural memory and memory as such and how the memory works. And uh, uh, we are going just uh, to uh, say to each other that we are great in reading and uh, reflecting on uh, literature. Well, you've given us one example there, the Museum of Abandoned Secrets. Um, aside from that, what, what, what else? You know, can you talk to us a little bit about what other kinds of new literature and poetry is being created and who's doing it? I'm, I'm sort of interested to, to know how much of it is, is focused around the full-scale invasion or are some artists trying to move away from that? What's, what's the balance? How do you see it? Yeah, definitely. Uh, short form is a key now uh, because uh, authors may write poetry or, for example, essays, uh, I mean small texts, which might be written, for example, in a subway while you're hiding from a strike or even from the dugouts. Uh, for example, at uh, the Ukrainians, we have uh, the printed magazine reporters and we went on printing it even in uh, the uh, full-scale invasion. And there were writers uh, who were at Ukrainian army uh, when I wrote to them and asked, guys, uh, do you want to write us uh, something new about your experiences. And I know that uh, people were tapping uh, the essays on their phones and uh, then they asked me just uh, to edit it well because it was difficult to write uh, good literature uh, from your iPhone. Uh, but uh, the thing is uh, that uh, a lot was already written and translated, even about this war, because the war started in 2014. And for example, the key novel about the Russo-Ukrainian war is the novel by Serhii Zhadan. It is called The Orphanage. It is translated into English, German, Polish and uh, uh, many other languages. And it really gives us uh, the best insight of uh, what it is to live in the grey zone. What uh, 
person experiences uh, when uh, one feels that uh, he or she is a target of an enemy. And uh, what is maybe the most important, what a civilian person experiences. So we really have a lot of poetry about this war, but... Uh, the interesting thing, you know, is uh, that uh, any art that is created right now is about war. It might may be not telling about uh, this war and it may not uh, give us the perspective of the battlefield uh, or um, what uh, the army does. But uh, if Ukrainian author writes something right now, it is definitely about the war. And it is really uh, felt in the different texts that I see. Uh, but um, when speaking about uh, what literature will we uh, see further, I think uh, that we need to look at the essays and the literary reportages because a lot of writers with whom I work, uh, they tell me that the um, truth now and the facts now are so sincere and so interesting that uh, they feel they're obliged to just to fix them and to write, for example, literary reportages and I'm really um, surprised for example with the short form essays but yeah, those writers who joined the army and the best example for me is Artem Chekh uh, who is also translated into English he is um, a writer and uh, he has a book Absolute Zero uh, about his war experience in 2015-2016. Uh, but, for example, our listeners may uh, Google his uh, essay at uh, New York Times, which is called I'm Ukrainian soldier and I have accepted my death. It is very... Um, a specific um, approach to what happens uh, here right now, for example, to cultural figures. And probably that person uh, wasn't able to write such a piece uh, after the war. But right now, in the form of opinion or in the form of essay, people just... Um, uh, fix uh, uh, their emotions and their reflections. And I think that uh, it will uh, give a lot uh, to us and uh, to our literary scene in the future. And there are dozens uh, examples like that. Well, thank you very much for that um, overview of, of contemporary literature and poetry. Could, could you take us a little bit back in time and talk about um, Ukrainian uh, literature in in the twenties and the thirties of the twentieth century. I mean, we, we we've heard a little bit about the um, what's called the executed Renaissance, um, and it, it's incredibly dark part of history, but an incredibly important one to talk about. Um, could you tell us about the executed Renaissance? What what happened, and who were these people? Uh, yeah. In spring, I wrote a thread on Twitter, and it was really well spread. I had quite thousand of retweets uh, and uh, a lot of comments and it was a thread dedicated to uh, Ukrainian avant-garde wave of Ukrainian modernism uh, and uh, most of the people I was writing about there uh, were killed uh, by uh, the Bolsheviks uh, these were Ukrainian intellectuals, Ukrainian um, academia figures, but also Ukrainian uh, fine artists, uh, Ukrainian uh, theater directors, but uh, also, of course, fiction writers. And uh, in, during the uh, Stalin's purges, uh, they were just exterminated. It is very difficult uh, to explain to foreign audience um, how it is like, uh, because uh, one needs to imagine that all the best voices of specific generation are uh, just exterminated. People are uh, tortured, then they are imprisoned and killed. Uh, their writing uh, is uh, banned. And uh, afterwards, uh, no one can read them. Uh, they are not translated into foreign languages or translated just a bit thanks to diaspora. And uh, they are not becoming a part of uh, international discourse. Uh, this is the story about the executive renaissance. Uh, it is the term that was proposed by the Polish emigre publisher Jerzy Gedroitz in 1959. Uh, it was in Paris and Ukrainian emigre and literary critic Yuri Lavrenenko uh, was planning to make an anthology of the best Ukrainian voices which were exterminated or made to become silent. 
uh, I will just uh, provide some data for our listeners. Uh, at the beginning of the 1930s, there were uh, 259 writers actively published in the Soviet Union, mentions Lavrinenko in the Executive Renaissance Anthology. But at the end of 1930s, there were only 36. Uh, how had 80% of uh, Ukrainian writers disappeared? Uh, Lavrinenko answers, uh, 17 were shot. Eight committed suicide, uh, seven died of natural causes, and 175 had been arrested and put into prison camps. 16, uh, 16 were missing. Uh, so uh, the idea of the executive renaissance is uh, to um, uh, give uh, a reader or uh, um, uh, interested person uh, the view at uh, Ukrainian culture of that time. Uh, because uh, as a colonial power, Imperial Russia always told that uh, Ukrainian had uh, not interesting culture, that Ukrainian culture uh, was uh, second-rated, rural and so on. Uh, a lot of people just don't know about Ukrainian modernism. And if we dive even some decades back from the executive renaissance, we may move to the end of the 19th century. And uh, the interesting fact is that Ukrainian modernism in literature was started by uh, two women, uh, Lesa Ukrainka and Olha Kobylanska, who were feminists, who were writing very powerful literature, which is really well read now in Ukraine and a uh, couple weeks ago, I was speaking to Willem Blacker, uh, who is a professor in London and who has courses in Ukrainian literature. And he told me that uh, Olha Kobylanska is really um, well perceived by the English students, but uh, also the plays of Lysa Ukrainka right now are translated into English. They are staged and performed in London and they also have a great success. I just uh, want to say that the executive renaissance is really a big example of uh, uh, the mask of politics uh, to the oppressed uh, national cultures and to oppressed countries. And it is not only the story of Ukraine. It is also the story of uh, Poland, of uh, the Baltic countries, of Czech Republic and of many other countries. And when we are speaking about such cases, uh, we um, fight uh, uh, colonialism. And it is really important thing to do to understand Ukraine and Ukrainian culture. Well, thank you very much um, for that for that, Bodana. I think uh, you've given our listeners a lot of names and a lot of people they can go and uh, read and listen to. So that's, abs that's absolutely fascinating. Thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. Um, can I ask, Bodana, you've been sp spending a lot of your time um, talking about, researching and writing about Ukrainian culture. Is, is there any aspect, particular aspect or writer or, 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 or anything really that you particularly enjoy sharing with, with foreigners, with people who don't know? Is there a particular thing you, you, you enjoy sort of introducing those of us who are not Ukrainian and not from Ukraine um, to? Yeah, definitely, David. Uh, I need to say that um, I enjoy sharing uh, what I love and what I may sincerely advise. Uh, and uh, it uh, doesn't depend on the audience because I work with uh, uh, domestic audience but also with international audience and I uh, have uh, some experience in cultural diplomacy also working with literary projects. Um, I believe that if you don't love uh, a culture you uh, can't uh, share it well. Uh, so um, I have uh, my uh, personal projects which are different from time to time um, concerning my uh, scientific interests. Uh, because, for example, right now I discover a lot about uh, the uh, texts uh, about Kiev city. Uh, because uh, we know a lot uh, about the texts, for example, about Paris, about New York, about uh, London, Dublin, even uh, any other cities. And there are also a lot of texts about Kyiv, and uh, I just uh, want to share uh, this knowledge, uh, first of all, with my Ukrainian and Kyiv audience. But when it goes to international audience, I uh, can speak uh, about really different epochs and about different uh, names and figures, uh, just because I want uh, another person to uh, discover this uh, culture and discover my country uh, through the uh, culture that I really love. And I believe that culture is the best way to 
uh, discover any country because uh, when we read about a country from the news or even from literary reportages, uh, we uh, get some facts. Uh, sometimes we may get some emotions, but when we, for example, read a good novel uh, from a specific literature, we dive into um, cultural traditions, we dive into the language, we dive into some uh, linguistic questions. And I believe that uh, this um, diving into a culture uh, through uh, the literature or through fine arts really gives us a lot. Absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Francis. Why don't you start with some of your final thoughts? I mean, today is the 300th day since the start of the full-scale invasion. I'm sure you have some thoughts on that. Yes, well, 300 days, extraordinary. And I think we've just passed over 200 episodes that we've covered now the war. I think, as I said earlier on, one of the big takeaways for me at the moment is there's an expectation, I think, amongst commentators who perhaps aren't following the war as closely as we are with our our listeners, that this war is going to go into deep freeze over the winter period. And I think that that's incorrect. I think that there are all the reasons to think that for both Ukraine and for Russia, that they cannot allow this war to be static over the winter period, if indeed the weather is good enough for them to be able to fight at a high level. The reason for that being that for Russia, they need some kind of victory before mass mobilizations begin again to show that it's not a futile errand. Uh, for the Ukrainians, they were not going to want to allow the Russians to resupply, to build up their their troops to such a high level that they will be able to launch a potentially successful offensive on Kyiv again in February and March, which, as we talked about last week, is what the current speculation is amongst the Ukrainian high command. So I think that there will be a lot going on in the coming weeks and months and more so than people expect. And the consequence of that will be, of course, that I think there will be some alarm amongst certain European capitals that will lead to certain countries putting pressure perhaps on thing on, on Ukraine to perhaps slow down, to try and um, lead to a more gradual way of fighting the war as opposed to something as fierce because they'll simply say, you know, that we want to try and keep the avenues of peace open. Now, I think that's a naive view. I think that, again, another discrepancy that I see between perhaps Western commentators and some political figures particularly is there seems to be a disconnect between... uh, understanding the degree, the, the strength of feeling and the practical impact of what would happen if, if finances and weapons support were withdrawn from the Ukrainians, say. And what I mean by that is that you hear certain countries in Europe talking, you know, hushed tones about the idea, well, of course, you know, if if America were to pull the plug on weapons and or, you know, uh, that, that we were to say we're no longer going to send money to Ukraine. I'm not saying they would want, they want to do this, but I'm just saying that they're throwing this out there as a hypothetical. Then, of course, Ukraine would be forced to the table, you know, and maybe we'll get to that point, blah, blah, blah. And I think they totally misunderstand the strength of feeling in Ukraine, the feeling that even if that were to happen, they would continue to fight and fight with the absolute strength of feeling that we have seen since this war began. And I think that that is a crucial calculation that needs to be put into everything that Western leaders, Western politicians, uh, Western journalists think when they are analysing this war, because it means that one of the central it's a central misunderstanding. I mean, again, for instance, people will say, well, Zelensky would be forced to do X, Y and Z if we were to. But Zelensky wouldn't be in power, I would argue, if, if he were to suddenly turn around tomorrow and say, well, actually, uh, we, we were going to try and um, negotiate away some of these annexed territories for peace. I mean, it's, it would be so vastly unpopular within Ukraine that it would be enough to topple him, I think, despite all of his um, uh, brilliant successes over the course of the war. So, as I say, it's not really a... a sophisticated reflection uh, on 300 days. Rather, it's just more some concerns that I have as we enter the end of this year and approach the next one, that I think that it's really vital that there is a more profound understanding of some realities in Ukraine this winter period in the months afterwards that politicians and journalists get their heads around, because if they don't, I think they're going to have some very nasty shocks in the months, months ahead. Thank you very much, uh, Francis. Uh, Badana, I'll go to you next, if that's all right, just so we can take advantage of your of your signal still being good. Um, what would you like to say to our listeners as, as your final remark? Thanks a lot, David. I just want to thank you for this uh, great conversation. If you want to support Ukraine right now, after... Um 
fear of a full-scale invasion, what can you do? Uh, today we had uh, this rich opportunity really to speak about the Ukrainian culture, uh, but uh, what Russia is trying to do now to us is to bring the humanitarian catastrophe uh, to all the country. And it is really important to um, shout out uh, for Ukraine and uh, to uh, say that uh, you are with Ukraine. But also uh, if you want to understand what is uh, this country like, um, read Ukrainian literature, uh, discover Ukrainian art, uh, watch Ukrainian cinematography, which is really powerful, and uh, explore Ukraine. Uh, we are waiting here for uh, you after the victory, and we have a lot to share with you. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Badana. That was absolutely fascinating. And thank you so much for taking time out of your day to, to speak to us. I'm sure we'd, we'd love to hear more from you. Unfortunately, um, we only have an hour and there's so much to say and so much to talk about. So I'm sure you'd be more than welcome um, to come and talk to us again in the future. Um, James Kilner, thank you so much for li listening to all of that and giving your updates. What are your very final thoughts? So, um, firstly, I, I just love that insight from Badano. It was an incredible image of these frontline soldiers tapping away on their iPhones to send dispatches back to Kiev and, and coming out with some great pieces of literature. That was um, a really unique insight. Thank you very much. Um, as for a final thought from me, after 300 days of war, uh, I, I work on the Moscow desk, um, so my focus is mainly the Kremlin and Russia. I write about Ukraine as well, but my focus has to be uh, the Kremlin. And uh, it's been absolutely staggering to see Russia and the Kremlin's place in the world crack and its power and influence wither over its near abroad. So I will be looking out for a continuation of that story. I think, um, as I was saying, recent changes in the Kremlin's uh, messaging and optics is, is, is really important to keep monitoring. Over the weekend, we saw an incident of um, uh, the Wagner chief, uh, Yevgeny Prigozhin, who lashed out at the uh, governor of St. Petersburg, Alexander Beglov, who, uh, Beglov, who, the, who he's got a long-running feud with about one of his uh, mercenary fighters being banned from being uh, buried in, in, a, in a military um, cemetery there. Uh, and this sort of uh, infighting in, in, in the Russian elite... Um, I'm not sure Prigorozhin is really one of the Russian elites, an opportunist, or opportunist and a fixer and a chancer, and also a convicted criminal and a thoroughly unpleasant person. But this sort of um, public airing of, of grievances in, in, in the Russian elite is, is highly un, unusual. And in, in normal times, Putin would have had none of this. He would have clamped down on this, he would have sorted out behind the scenes, and that would have been the end of it. But these obviously not normal times. Putin's very distracted. Uh, there are cracks appearing uh, and it's definitely something to keep watching out for. Ukraine The Latest is an original podcast from The Telegraph. To stay on top of all of our Ukraine news, analysis and dispatches from the ground, subscribe to The Telegraph. You can get your first 30 days completely free at telegraph.co.uk slash audio. And sign up to Dispatches, our Ukraine newsletter, which brings stories from our award-winning foreign correspondents straight to your inbox. You can listen to this conversation live at 1pm each weekday on Twitter Spaces. Follow The Telegraph on Twitter so you don't miss it. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider following Ukraine The Latest on your preferred podcast app. And if you have a moment, leave a review as it helps others find the show. You can also get in touch directly to ask questions or give comments by emailing podcasts at telegraph.co.uk. We do read every message, and we are especially interested to hear where you are listening from around the world. Ukraine The Latest is produced by Louisa Wells and Giles Gear, and today on Twitter, Claire Hubble.